imagine with me for a moment that I decided to lecture to you about the ocean. And before the lecture began, I went down to the coast and I took a thimble and I dipped it in the water and I brought it back for the lecture. When I got you all gathered together, I held up the thimble and I said, this is the ocean. Now, you would understand, wouldn't you, that there's no way this thimble could contain the entire ocean. Well, in like manner, God is infinitely more vast than the ocean. And this sermon series that we're beginning today on the doctrine of the Trinity is simply a thimble. There's no way we can wrap our minds around and our hearts around and have the words to communicate how big and how great and how glorious God is. This, This sermon series is merely a thimble. But how many of you understand that even a thimble full of God can change your life? And so this summer, we're going to, week by week, study together the glorious doctrine of the Trinity. And I'm thrilled to to lead you through that. So look with me in Genesis chapter 1. This is where we begin the first book of the Bible, the first chapter of that book. Genesis chapter 1. Let's start in verse 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I'd like to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Genesis 1, verse 1. Marvelous attendance on this uh, June Sunday. Isn't that awesome? Uh, I heard our parking lot was filling up out there. That's awesome. And uh, this is just the first service. That's awesome. So excited about that. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, fast forward down with me to verse 26. I want you to focus your attention in on this verse. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let's pray together this morning. Father, you are great and glorious. And it is such a privilege to gather together as a faith family to focus exclusively upon you. And Lord, we admit as we, as we study this, this vital biblical doctrine, we admit that we are needy. All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. So Lord, would you help me today as I preach? Would you give me grace and, 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 and the power of your Spirit? And would you help me to say things that are accurate and correct and guard me from saying anything that is incorrect? And would you anoint the hearers today, Lord, that, that we would have ears to hear what you are saying and that we would be changed by your truth? Lord, this sermon series... Is just a thimble. But Lord, I pray that you would move with power and that you would transform lives and that 
your name would be made much of this summer through the people of Longview Point. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, would you move? We ask and pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, usually when I preach to you, I preach through books of the Bible. We go through them line by line, verse by verse. And this series is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be more of a a topical series where we are going through different passages and looking at how it all uh, fits together, the the synergy, the unity of Scripture, if you will. So it's going to be a little bit different. I think it's going to be instructive for us as a church as we study the doctrine of the Trinity. And really, my sermon this morning has two points, and the two points are intended to answer these questions. The first question is, what is the Trinity? We want to define that. We hear that term used. Churches are named Trinity Baptist Church or Trinity Church or whatever. We, we see that term out there. We, we talk about the Trinity. What does, that, what does that term mean, the Trinity? What is the Trinity? The second question is, why does it matter? What, what's the big deal? And so we're going to look at these two headings to answer those two questions. So to answer the first question, what is the Trinity? I want to show you a definition of the doctrine of the Trinity. A definition of the doctrine of the Trinity. And I've given you a long one there by Bruce Ware. And I've given you this because it's helpful for you to look at and to study and to reflect on. It's also good for you to look at before you go into your Connect group next week and discuss uh, this sermon But let me just read through the definition with you. This, again, comes from Bruce Ware. His definition of the Trinity is this. The Christian faith confirms that there is one and only one God, eternally existing and fully expressed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each member of the Godhead is equally God, each is eternally God, and each is fully God. Not three gods but three persons of the one Godhead. Each person is equal in essence, and each possesses fully the identically same eternal divine nature, yet each is also an eternal and distinct personal expression of the one undivided divine nature. That cleared up for you? It's a long definition. It's, it's, it's a powerful definition, and hopefully as we walk through Our study this morning, that definition will make more and more sense to you and will come to mean more and more to you. So what I've done is I've kind of summarized it and I've given us us a working definition. This working definition is the definition we're going to use throughout the entire summer. So here's our working definition. Now the first definition, you wouldn't be able to probably, unless you work really hard at it, uh, memorize that entire definition and share it with somebody. But this working definition is something you can something you can memorize and even share in the context of conversations that you might have. So here's the working definition. The Bible teaches that there is one true God eternally existing in three co-equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that there is one true God eternally existing in three co-equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's a little bit uh, more for us to, uh, a little bit less for us to digest and to chew upon. So what I want to do is I want to break down that definition. I want to just kind of walk you through it and, and show you how biblically we got to that definition. Because listen, if it's not biblical, we don't want it. 
if the doctrine of the Trinity is not biblical, then we don't want to be Trinitarian. But if the doctrine of the Trinity is biblical, we better be Trinitarian. So I want to show you biblically how we got to this definition. So let me just walk you through the different verses to show you how the Bible puts all of this together. And just FYI, the Bible does not use the word Trinity. That was used in early church history to, to really sum up what, what scholars believe the Bible taught about the, the nature and essence and persons of God. So let's look at all the biblical evidence, kind of put it together to see how we got to that, that definition I showed you earlier. Here we, here's how we begin. There is one God. The way the doctrine of the Trinity unfolds in the Bible is by first focusing in on monotheism. God does not want us to get this wrong. He wants us to understand there are not many gods. There is only one true God. And to show you this, turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, there are a lot of places we could look. Uh, I'm just sh- going to show you a couple of verses. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I love this passage because this is the Hebrew Shema, uh, which is a famous uh, passage that, that the Hebrew people would and still do uh, quote. Uh, and, and they would teach it to their families. Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 4 begins, Hear, O Israel. By the way, the Hebrew word for hear is Shema. That's why we get that phrase, Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And so, this confession of the Hebrew people, this biblical passage, reminds us, teaches us, that, that, that the Bible is monotheistic, The one true God is the only true God. There is one God. And and the New Testament says this as well. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. Paul is dealing here with how Christians should handle food offered to idols. He says to the church in Corinth, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but what? One. There is one God. And here's what's interesting. Even the demonic realm knows that. Notice what it says over in the book of James in the New Testament. This is fascinating. James chapter 2, verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So even Satan and his demons, they believe in monotheism. They believe that there is one true God. They know that there is one true God. So if we're going to be biblical, if we're going to follow the revelation of the word of God, we've got to be monotheistic. And this is important because some folks that don't understand the doctrine of the Trinity accuse Christians of being uh, tritheists, that we believe in three gods, particularly those who are of the faith of Islam. Uh, often when you talk to people that are Muslim, they will say, well, you believe in three gods because they don't understand the doctrine of the Trinity. So we've got to begin with this foundation. There is one God and only one God. This is a great place for an amen. Now, listen, I'm not going to cue you this morning, okay, because I don't like doing that. But if, you will, if you'll answer back to me every so often, it really helps me out, okay? It may make me preach longer, but it helps me out. So, there's only one God. 
Amen. Now, here's the second part of that, that working definition. Here's how we get to the definition biblically. There are three persons who are called God. Not three humans, three persons, three personalities. There are three persons who are called God. Who are the three persons that are called God in the Scripture? Well, we sang about this morning, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Spirit, Lord, we come. And, and, and we see here the Father is called God. The Father is called God. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 8 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And again, there are a lot of verses we can look at, but we're going to just begin with these few because I've got to move quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. It says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and uh, from whom are all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so here, clearly, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, calls the Father God. That's one who is called God, one person who is called God. There is a second person called God. The Son is called God. Uh, John 1 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, wait, who's the Word? Well, over in John chapter 1, verse 14, we, we hear who the Word of uh, uh, the Word is. It says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, speaking clearly of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ is called God. And then look over in Hebrews with me. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. I know I have you flipping a lot, but just hang with me so we can. See the witness of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 1. Look what it says in verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn. Now, the, the firstborn there doesn't mean that, that Jesus Christ uh, came into existence for the first time. Jesus Christ is eternal. More on that later. Firstborn means he has a place of preeminence. He left heaven and came to earth. Again, when he, the Father, brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now listen to me. Over the Ten Commandments, we learn that no one is to receive worship but God. Right? So the Bible's clear on that. No one receives worship but God. And here God the Father says of the Son, he should receive worship, which means what? He's God. But then it gets even more explicit. Look what it says in the next verse. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, look at what the Father says about the Son. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is a quote from the Psalms. And so here in Hebrews uh, and in John 1, Jesus is clearly called God. And some say, well, did he have that self-awareness of being God? Well, over in the end of the Gospel of John, when he's risen from the dead and he walks in the room where doubting Thomas was, and Thomas sees the, the nail prints in his hands and the, the spear print in his side, he knows that Jesus Christ died but had been raised from the dead. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, no, no, don't call me God. 
He received that worship because he was and he is God. And so the Father is called God and the Son is called God and the Holy Spirit is called God. Look over in Acts chapter 5 with me. Acts chapter 5, where again, I'm just showing you how this doctrine is put together biblically. Acts chapter 5, verse 3. Well-known story of Ananias and Sapphira lying to the early church leaders. Verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to who? God. So in verse 3, he says, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And in the next verse, he calls him God. By lying to the Holy Spirit, he's saying, you lied to God himself. And, and, and so the Father is called God. The, the Son is called God. The, the Spirit is called God. Now, let me just say another word about these three persons who are called God. And this is important if you look in your notes. The three persons... Being co-equal and co-eternal are fully God. The three persons, being co-equal and co-eternal, are fully God. I heard uh, not too long ago a, a pastor, Baptist pastor, use as an illustration a pizza when he was referring to the Trinity. And he was saying that the pizza all had one essence, and, but there are different slices in the pizza. And, and what's wrong with the illustration is this. It takes the different slices put together to make one entire pizza. And that's not an accurate description of the Trinity. Each person of the Godhead is fully God. It's not that you put them all together and you make God. They all possess the fullness of of deity. And so they're all, being God, co-equal. They're equal in their nature because they're all God. And they're co-eternal. They've always existed. God the Father has always existed. God the Son has always existed. God the Holy Spirit has always existed. So wait, does the Bible teach that? Are the three persons of the Godhead co-equal and co-eternal? Well, Colossians 2.9 says it's about Jesus. It says, in him, in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The Bible says Jesus in his, in his humanity, has the fullness of deity in him. He is fully God, not part God. He is fully God. He said, wait, has Jesus Christ always existed? Or did he come into existence when he was born of the Virgin Mary? Listen to me. The incarnation was not when Jesus Christ began to exist. It was when he left heaven and came to earth. He's always existed over in Uh, The Gospel of John chapter 8, he's talking to the religious leaders and he says, listen, you talk about Abraham, before Abraham was, I am. Now he didn't say before Abraham was, I was. He says before Abraham was, before he existed, I was there, existing. Jesus Christ has always existed. And over in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14, the Bible calls the Spirit, listen to me, the eternal Spirit. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit all possess the fullness of deity, so they're equal, and, and they've all existed forever. They are all eternal. Now, someone might say, wait a, wait a minute, Wade. You're talking about they're all equal. Doesn't Jesus obey 
the father when he's on the earth? Doesn't the father send the son and the son obeys God and, and, and even to the point of death, death on a cross? I mean, so it seems like God the father is kind of calling the shots and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are doing what their father wants them to do. Well, there's a, an important distinction here that theologians make between what they call, hang with me for a minute, the economic trinity and the ontological trinity. When it comes to the, the, the being of God, ontological, uh, all three persons possess full godhood. They, they, they're all equal because they all are fully gods. That makes sense? But economically, the way it works out, God uh, operates through roles and relationships in the, in the trinity. And this is seen in marriage. Did you know that marriage is modeled after the trinity? Did you know that? Do you know in marriage... A man and a woman are complete equals. Can I get an amen? Men and women are complete equals. And if you ever hear someone tell you that Christians don't teach that, then they are, they are wrong. The Bible teaches that men and women are created in the image of God and are completely equal. But within the institution of marriage, God has ordained different roles for husbands and for wives. He's given husbands the primary role of leadership in the family, and he's given the wife the role of submitting to her husband's leadership to help the family go in a positive God-honoring direction. And so in marriage, there is equality but different roles. That makes sense? It's the same in the Trinity. God models that for us in the Trinity. They're, they're different persons. They're all equal ontologically, but economically they have different roles and functions. Got me? All right, now hang with me. We're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna keep going. The next thing to put this definition together, the threeness and the oneness are not contradictory. Now this is where a lot of people get confused. Because people say, you believe God is three in one. That's a contradiction. That that can't be right. Listen to me. When we say God is three and we say God is one, we are not contradicting ourselves. Because the three and the one refer to two different realities. So wait, can you explain? Well, I'm glad you asked. Oneness, when we say God is one, monotheism, right? Here in Israel, the Lord our God is what? One. Oneness refers to God's essence or nature. It's what makes God God. Things like omnipotence. Only God has omnipotence, right? Only God is all-powerful. Things like omniscience, omnipresence. You know, those different attributes of God. That which makes God God. That's essence or nature, When we say three, three refers to the persons, listen, who possess that one nature. So three and one don't refer to the same thing. Got that? That's important. We're not contradicting ourselves. We are looking at the unveiled evidence of Scripture. Think of it like this. When we say one, we're referring to a what? God's essence. We say three, we're referring to who? Who contains that essence? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So you say it like this. Hey, there is one what and three who's. Got that? So they don't contradict each other. Don't let people say that because if they say that, they don't understand the teaching of the Bible. Now you might say, okay, Wade, that helps the definition make sense. But is that biblical? Is there really one essence and three persons? Is that a biblical thought? Can you, can you show me a verse? 
I mean, show me a verse to, so I can really, you know, grab hold of this idea. Well, again, I'm glad you asked. There are some really cool verses that speak of essence and persons. For example, we start in Genesis 1.26. Turn there with me. Genesis 1.26. Genesis 1.20. I'm going fast on purpose, okay? Someone tells me, people tell me every so often, wait, you talk fast. I'm like, I know. I got a lot to say. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, now stop. God right there in verse 26 is singular. You know why? It's referring to the essence of God. But then look what he says. Let us, that us is plural. Let us make man in our, the word our, plural, in our image. So in one verse, you have essence and persons. One God, three persons. Found there right in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. And let me show you to you in the New Testament. Look over with me in Matthew 28. I love this. What a cool day to have baptism because you're going to see this in a, in a moment. Matthew 28, verse 19, right in the middle of what we call the Great Commission. Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our baptism formula that you heard this morning is triune, it's, it's Trinitarian. But notice here in that verse, he says, baptizing them in the name. That, that word name is singular. One name because there's one God. Can I get an amen? And, and then there are three persons. God the Father, and, and God the Son, and, and God the Holy Spirit. So right here in this one verse, we see essence and personhood. Right in the same verse. One God, three persons. And, and there are other places we can look, but I want to I just leave you with that thought that the threeness and oneness are not contradictory. Now, at this point, you are saying, I know, you're saying, please give us an illustration. I mean, this is tough. I mean, this, is, this, this stuff will make your head spin. You know, equality and, and ontological and economic and essence and personhood. and Wait, give me an illustration to help nail this down. You want an illustration, but listen to me. There's really no illustration that does this justice. And, and most of the illustrations will lead you into heresy. Next week, I'll, I'll talk about that. I'll talk about where people get it wrong when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity. and It'll help us to understand the real thing better next week. But next week, I'm going to show you how a, lot of the, how a lot of the illustrations that are used simply do not fully communicate the oneness and the threeness of God. Either they emphasize the oneness to the exclusion of the threeness or they emphasize the threeness to the exclusion of the oneness. And, and there's just really no good analogy uh, to, to nail down the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, you're going to be saying, oh, I've heard this one and that one. I've, I've, I've read them all, I've heard them all, okay? And I'm telling you, if you boil them down, you will find that they are not accurate. So here's what, I, here's what I like to do. I just like to look at what the Bible says. And the best illustration of this is found over in Matthew. Matthew chapter 3, and it's when Jesus Christ is being baptized. Now, here, here's a quick illustration you hear a lot before we read Matthew 3. You hear that the Trinity is like water. You ever heard that one? 
that, that water can have three forms. It can have a, uh, a frozen form, ice, and it can have a liquid form, and it can have a, a, a gas form. There, ice can have three forms. Listen to me, that's not a helpful illustration because a molecule of water can only be, listen to me, can only be one of those forms at one time. In other words, it can only be ice at one time. It can't be, it can't be liquid and gas at the same time. It can only be one at a time. Only, any one molecule of water can only be one of the three forms uh, at a time, right? Look what happens in Matthew 3. Jesus Christ is baptized. He is God on earth, God in human flesh. So there's God in the water. He comes up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove. And then there's this voice from heaven, the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You know what you have there in that picture? All three persons of the Godhead operating at the same time. Not one at a time. They're all there in the same story, operating at the same time. Some people say that God is, exists in modes, that he's the Father for a while, and then he's the Son for a while, then he becomes the Spirit for a while. That's, like, that's the ice cube, water, gas illustration. That's not accurate. Here in this passage, all three persons are there at the same time doing their thing. Amen? So, so don't get away from just what the Bible teaches, what the Bible says about God. Now, I've done my best to give you a, 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 a concise a definition, help you understand that this definition is biblical of the Trinity. But listen, it's a thimble, right? It's a thimble. I mean, how can we wrap our hearts and minds around the doctrine of the oneness and the threeness of God? It, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine, but, but here's the question I want to answer for the remainder of this sermon. So what? Why is it mad? Why, why, why are we doing the summer sermon series? Why are you involving yourself in all this doctrine stuff? What, what's the big deal? That leads to the second part of our sermon, the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity. The importance of the doctrine of the Trinity. Why we should care. Number one, belief in the Trinity is a test of orthodoxy. Look at what it says over in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. It talks about the kind of faith that saves, the kind of faith that honors God. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6. It says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. Now literally in the Greek language that phrase is, must believe that he is. Which you've got to believe. You've got to believe that God is who he says he is, right? You've got to believe what the Bible reveals about God. Must believe that he exists, that he is, and that he rewards those who seek him. So, if you don't believe that God is who he says he is in his word, then you cannot be a follower of Christ. You cannot be born again. You cannot be saved. You have to go with what the Bible teaches. And and so this is a test of orthodoxy. This is a a non-negotiable for Christianity. And and this is a non-negotiable for our church. This is an area where we hold the line. We don't want to get it wrong when it comes to God, right? This is what God has revealed 
about himself. Listen to what Millard Erickson writes, theologian. The doctrine of the Trinity is crucial for Christianity. It is concerned with who God is, what he is like, and how he works, and how he is to be approached. If you want to come to a relationship with the one true God, you've got to know who he is and how you come to know him. And that is found in the doctrine of the Trinity. And so this is a big deal. You've probably heard this phrase before. The Trinity. Try to explain it, you'll lose your mind. But deny it, you'll lose your soul. This is not just some doctrinal talk from Pastor Wade. This is critical. This is what the Bible reveals about the one true God. And we cannot get this wrong. If we get this wrong, we will plunge ourselves into error that will lead many away from the faith that has been once and all delivered to the saints. we got to get it right. That's why I wanted to emphasize this summer that, that, that this is what the doctrine of the Trinity is. Here's a second reason we should care. While God is incomprehensible, he is knowable. While God is incomprehensible, he is knowable. What do I mean by incomprehensible? Here's what I mean. We cannot fully wrap our minds around the one true God. Look over in Psalm 145 with me, verse 3. If you've been around here very long, you know I love Psalm 145. It so clearly displays the attributes of God. Look what it says in Psalm 145, verse 3. Psalm of David. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Hey, do you believe that? Do you believe that God is great and greatly to be praised? Look what he says next. And his greatness is unsearchable. In other words, you'll never fully comprehend God. You'll never wrap your mind around God, even in eternity in heaven. We will forever and ever and ever be learning more of the glory and majesty of the one true God. He's infinite. He has no boundaries, no ending. And so David says his greatness is unsearchable. So we can't fully wrap our minds around the one true God. Here's what James White says. The Trinity is a truth that tests our dedication to the principle that God is smarter than we are. I like. Don't you like that? Let me say it again. I don't think you. I don't think you liked it. The Trinity is a truth that tests our dedication to the principle that God is smarter than we are. As strange as that may sound, I truly believe that in most instances where a religious group denies the Trinity, the reason can be traced back to the founders' unwillingness to admit the simple reality that God is bigger than we can ever imagine. That is really what Christians have always meant when they use the term mystery of the Trinity. The term has never meant that the Trinity is an inherently irrational thing. Instead, it simply means that we realize that God is completely unique in the way he exists and there are elements of his being that are simply beyond our meager mental capacity to comprehend. So can we just all agree this morning that while we can stand upon the teaching of God's word and, and, and understand what the Bible says and build our lives upon it and believe it, we'll never completely figure God out. And by the way, I'm glad to have a God I can't figure out. I, listen, I've been to places in the world where they make idols with their hands, they put it in their home and worship. I can figure that out. I can figure out something I made with my own hands, can't you? But our God, the one true God, the God of the Bible, you can't comprehend him. 
So some people just punt. They say, God is, he's incomprehensible. This Trinity stuff is too much. And so I'm just going to punt. I'm not interested in him. But notice the second part of that sentence. While God is incomprehensible, God is noble. Men, how many of you ever said at some point in your life, I don't understand women? Raise your hand. How many of you, not understanding women, still chased a woman? (laughs) Me, right? Married to Claire. And so... And so just because we can't fully comprehend God doesn't mean that we should avoid pursuing a deepening relationship with God. There are treasures and riches that exist in a relationship with the one true God. So here's the good news. The good news is you can have a personal relationship with the triune God. Over in John 17, 3, Jesus defines eternal life. Eternal life is a lot more than just living forever in heaven. Jesus says, this is eternal life. Listen, talking to his father, that they may know you, the one true God, and your son. That's eternal life, that we get to know God. And we get to know God from the moment of conversion, a personal relationship with God. For me, that was when I was nine years of age. We get to know God at the moment of conversion, and we get to know him forever and ever and ever and ever into eternity. That is Christianity. And, and even though we can't figure God out, we shouldn't punt and say, well, it's too much for me. We should say, here's what the Bible says, and I want to know that God. I want to have a relationship with him. I want him to change my life. He said, wait, how can I know a God that's incomprehensible? How can I have a relationship with a God who is so transcendent and perfect and holy and righteous and just, and I'm such a mess. How can a sinner like Wade Humphreys claim to have a personal relationship with the God of the universe? The answer, God loves us. He loves us so much that he sent his only son to come to this earth. We'll talk about the Trinity and salvation in a couple of weeks, three weeks. He sent his only son to come to this earth and Jesus Christ went to the cross and died to pay the the penalty for our sin. He took the punishment that we deserve so that if we embrace him as our Lord and Savior, his shed blood is applied to our account and our sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus. And because that sin of impurity is gone, now we have access to the one true God and can step into a personal relationship with him and know him intimately. Isn't that awesome? Jesus is the way that you enter in to this relationship with the triune God. And by the way, there's no other way to have this relationship. Jesus said in John uh, 14 verse 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the only way to be saved. He's the only way to have this relationship with God. And hey, by the way, this relationship that God offers you, listen to me, it's absolutely free. It's a free gift you receive by faith. It's a free gift you accept because Jesus Christ has done it all. Herman Bovink, the Dutch theologian, says this, In the doctrine of the Trinity beats the heart of the whole revelation of God for the redemption of humanity. As the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, our God is above us, before us, and within us. Powerful. And so, even though God is incomprehensible, he's knowable. 
Even though these things we're studying are, are beyond our finite mental capacity, aren't you glad that God has told us enough in his word so we know who he is truly and we can step into a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ? Or aren't you glad God did not leave us to try to figure this out on our own because we never would have figured it out? I'm so glad that God has spoken in his word so we know the truth about who he is and the truth about how we can know him and be saved by him. So God is beyond comprehension, but always knowable, dear friend. I have a personal relationship with God. He's knowable. I talked to him this morning. I opened my Bible, he talked to me. Amen? There's one final thing I want to give you, and we'll be through. Because a lot of times when you do a doctrinal study like this, people are like, well, you know, why do we got to do all this doctrine, this deep stuff? I mean, what, what, what's the deal? Listen to me. We want to inform our minds to inflame our hearts. The goal is not to just make us all smarter. And walk in here and say, my church studies the doctrine of the Trinity. That's not good theology. Good, listen, good theology captures your heart. And, and the reason that we want to study this doctrine is so that God will capture our heart. Our hearts will be on fire for him and it will cause us to rise up as as worshipers of the one true God, giving him the praise that is due his name and giving him our very lives because he is worthy of our very lives. And so listen to me. If we get to the end of the summer, we've gone through this doctrinal series and our hearts aren't on fire. Something's missing, isn't it? Something's missing. We want to study with our minds the clear revelation of God's word to inflame our hearts we want to know and articulate the doctrine of the Trinity so that we can worship God in spirit and in truth. Over in John 4, uh, uh, Jesus says that God is looking for true worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth. And as we learn the doctrine of the Trinity, we become true worshipers. But listen to me. I've given you a definition and a working definition, but I want you to understand God is not a formula to be figured out. He's the one true God existing in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. He is worthy of our praise. And if we're not praising him more after this is over, if we're not talking about him more after this is over, we're missing the point of it all. I like to call studies in theology, theology on fire. This is not cold, dead orthodoxy. This is truth that's been given to us through the inspiration of the Spirit of God that will transform our lives and our culture. I love this quote from Bruce Ware. I'm going to close in just a moment. He says, I believe that many Christians or many Christian people will one day stand before the Lord aware as never before that they spent too little time getting to know the depth and wonder of who God really is. Including his revelation of himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one God over all. So here's here's what I want you to walk away with today. The point of the sermon. It is vital to study the Trinity so that we can know God better and worship him more fully. The the remainder of this series, we're going to unpack how the Trinity is active in our lives, the the dynamic of, 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 of the 
triune God in our salvation, our sanctification, our prayer lives, missions, all of that. We're going to show how, why this matters. But yeah, I want you to walk away today knowing it is vital to study the Trinity so that we can know God better and worship Him more fully.